Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Well, if you uh, remember, last week we began to look at a modern-day point of view in regard to the Shabbat from an internationally recognized scholar, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Jeffrey. And I I will say this again. He is a scholar that I have a profound uh, respect for. Uh, He's a man that clearly uh, has a sincere passion uh, for the Word of God. He has a sincere passion for, for Bible prophecy. This is, that's kind of his wheelhouse. Uh, but when it comes to the Shabbat, uh, when it comes to things like this, uh, unfortunately, we, uh, we don't line up uh, where we're at. But having said that, I appreciate the time. I appreciate the care, the skill that he has devoted to this subject and just how clearly and how concisely he presents and defends his position of why uh, Christians today celebrate Sunday and it's okay to abandon the Shabbat. And so I just appreciate his approach to this. So what we're going to do today is um, we're going to continue to look at his chapter uh, titled, Why Do Christians Worship on Sunday? Because there's a few more points here uh, that I want to hit on within this chapter that I think uh, they're going to benefit us in, in regard to really getting a broader perspective, a better understanding of exactly why Christians do worship on Sunday rather than on Saturday. So with that said, let's open up. Continuing on in the chapter, he says the following, or he, asks the, he poses the following question, why did Jewish Christians worship on both days? Now, you take last week where we were going through the chapter. Now, his argument's really starting to beginning to develop. Uh, You'll see that more and more as we go on today. But this is what he says. During the first century, historical evidence confirms that many Jewish Christians continued to worship on the Saturday Sabbath because Christ and his disciples never instructed Jews to cease this biblically authorized practice for Jews from the Torah. You just see what he said here? Let me highlight the main component here. He specifically identifies two very important things that are absolutely foundational, especially for today's message. The first thing he recognizes is the fact that to keep the Shabbat, the Sabbath observance, it's biblical. This is biblically mandated. This is biblically authorized practice. And not just that, but then he adds the component here that neither Christ nor his disciples ever instructed the Jews anything else. They never were instructed to abandon the Shabbat. This, what was just laid out, is critically important. As we continue even looking at his own arguments, this is foundational. And it's truth. I mean, you can't find what, what he's saying here is absolutely true. You will not find anywhere in Scripture where they're going around and telling their brethren that, hey, the Sabbath is done away with. Let's, let's grab on to Sunday. You can't find it. All right, so continuing on, this is what he says. However, evidence confirms that from the beginning, Jewish believers joined with their Gentile Christian brothers in worshiping at the Lord's Supper on Sunday, the day of Christ's resurrection. In other words, many Jewish Christians worshipped on both Saturday and Sunday. Okay, as I noted last week, uh, we know that they got together every day of the week. 
They met daily. They worshiped the Lord daily. They broke bread daily. They went to the temple daily. But let me be clear on something. Not every day is holy. And no matter what you do, let me say this clearly. Neither your actions nor anything you can declare with your mouth has any power in and of itself to start ordaining specific days as holy. As I said before, that privilege belongs to God alone, period. It is his. And really, we're stuck with two options. You can either accept what he has proclaimed to be holy, or you can reject it. There's no middle ground here. We're, just, we're offered this uh, pathway, if you will, the fork in the road. Now he goes on. Many church writers noted the difference between the Jewish Sabbath worship and the Christian's Lord's Day on Sunday. The statement is true. Absolutely. As you see on the screen, this is true. You already know this, though, because we've gone through the history. Many early Christian writers absolutely made a distinction between the Sabbath and what they now call the Lord's Day of Worship, or we, we call it Sunday. But do you know what they were doing? You probably already picked up on it, on what the early church writers were doing and why they did it. They were setting the stage for dual covenant theology. This is exactly what they were doing, where they would separate the Jew from the Gentile. Okay, They would separate Israel from the church. This is what's happening. That middle wall of separation was being re-erected. The one that Yeshua tore down. And this is where things really begin to get dangerous when you attempt to push Two different programs. One program for the Jews. There's another program for Christians. Oh, there's one day for the Jews to worship the Lord. But there's, there's another day for the Christians. This is dual covenant theology. And I'm going to tell you, this is a trap that captures so many well-intentioned believers. Not even just, just really well-educated believers. I want you to think about this. The best way for me to describe dual covenant theology to you is through a picture. And you think of dual covenant theology, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a belief system that is a pair of glasses. And within that pair of glasses, you have literally two different lenses. And it looks something like this. Here you got a pair of glasses. Now notice, the landscape is the same. Behind the glasses, it is the exact same landscape, but if you look in the lenses, two different pictures entirely. Completely different. This is how it is with dual covenant theology. See, dual covenant theology looks through one lens. They look through one lens at the exact same landscape, i.e. the Bible. And that one lens tells them, they look and they say... Oh, I see this talks about the commandments of God. It talks about the Torah. We should be keeping that. We should be keeping the Sabbath holy. Oh, we should be observing these festivals. These are Mikra, uh, Kodesh. These are holy assemblies unto the Lord. We should, we should be observing that. Uh, look at, we should be defining what is clean and what is unclean. We should be acknowledging what is holy is unholy. And so you get all these things out of that one lens. But you jump over to the other lens, i.e. the church, the lens of the church, you're looking at the same landscape, you're looking at the same book, and they start saying, well, the Torah isn't for us, we don't have to do it. The Sabbath isn't for us, we don't have to do that. We don't have to distinguish between clean and unclean. We don't have to keep the feasts. 
And all of these things start to happen. This is literally what dual covenant theology is. It's the same book with two different interpretations and applications entirely. And the point I want to make here is that this is exactly what Dr. Jeffrey is literally introducing into the discussion. This is where he is taking the discussion. And you know why? Because he has to. For him to defend his position, okay, and to say it's okay to, for Christians to abandon Sabbath, it's, we have a new day, we have Sunday, for him to do that, he has to go down this road. There's no other way. Because you can't support it scripture alone. You've, you've got you to put the, the glasses on and look through the glasses of dual covenant theology. Now, as we continue, Dr. Jeffrey goes on to support this statement that Jews worship on both Saturday and Sunday. Interesting. And this is what he says. He says, an early church writer, Theodoret, and Theodoret, it was an early church writer from the 5th century. And that will be important as we continue, because I'm going to bring up a point about that. But Theodoret wrote about the heretical Jewish Christian group called the Ebionites. Okay, it's, he, typically people pronounce it Ebionites uh, or the Evonim in Hebrew. And it simply means poor ones. And it's, the name is thought to be derogatory because they were men of poor understanding. Let me give you a little backdrop in regard to the Evonim or the Ebionites. Uh, they truly were heretical. They were absolutely Jewish Christians that identified with Christ. They confessed him as being the true Messiah, their savior of the world. But there were particular things that they clung on to, theologically speaking, that put them in the camp of being heretics. For example, they did not believe in the virgin birth of Yeshua, which we just sang a song about. They didn't believe that. They believed Yeshua's conception was completely of that of the flesh. All right? And in addition to that, they believed that he didn't, which makes sense, they believed that he didn't eternally pre-exist. Another thing they believed is that they believed the Apostle Paul was a heretic. He was actually a heretic. They did not respect, they did not want anything to do with his epistles. They saw him as one who had failed in the faith. And I'm just going to say this. This has nothing to do about what we're doing here, but I'm going to tell you this right now. Do you know that we have Ebionites alive and well today? They are alive and well, who identify, ironically enough, with Hebrew roots. They identify with Messianic, where you have these fringe groups, if you will. They're going out saying Yeshua never eternally pre-existed. Some of them do say, well, we don't necessarily believe in the virgin birth. But some others, they say, well, we, we believe in that, but he wasn't eternally pre-existent. What's so fascinating about this, as you dig into this, and there's many groups that they reject Paul as well. Isn't this interesting how when you go back to the first century faith and we start doing what we're doing here, we're confronted with the very problems they were confronted with in the first century. It's natural. It's absolutely amazing. But this just gives you some backdrop into this group that he brings to the table of which Theodoret, the, the writer, he mentions. Now he goes on to say, in regard to these uh, Ebionites, who worshipped on both Saturday and Sunday. Theodoret claimed they kept the Sabbath according to the Jewish law and sanctify the Lord's Day in a like manner as we do. So think about what, 
what Dr. Jeffrey is doing here. He's utilizing Theodoret, what he records in regard to the Ebionites, as evidence to support that, hey, listen, even Jews were celebrating Sunday as holy. So what we're doing today is totally justified. Now, it's a little peculiar to me to step on a podium and start grabbing heretical, known, confessed, heretical Jewish groups and say, hey, look at what they're doing. They're doing the same thing as us, therefore it's all good. This is not something that somebody would typically do, right? I mean, not me anyways, but I find that interesting. But let's just say for the sake of argument, let's pretend. Let's pretend the Ebionites were an authentic, tried and true Jewish Christians. Let's just say they didn't subscribe to any heresy whatsoever. They were it. They were just a a continuance of the apostles. All right? The fact that they acknowledged Sunday in the context of celebrating Yeshua's resurrection and identifying with the fact that he did rise on the first day of the week. He rose on Sunday. That's a scriptural fact. I don't have a problem with that. There is no issue with that at all. Wonderful. I think it's a wonderful thing so long as you acknowledge the reality that they never saw it as a reason to abandon God's direct commandment, the Shabbat. Let me take this a step further. As far as the Ebionites are concerned, there is nothing historically that I have seen which indicates that they actually treated Sunday as a Sabbath a day where no melacha is performed and, and all the other Sabbath prescriptions or pro- prohibitions were applied to that day. I cannot find it anywhere. If you find it, please bring it to me. There's no evidence of this whatsoever. The observance that's being described here by Theodoret is actually in the context of a memorial celebration rather than an explicit commandment of God. And to prove what I am saying here, let me read to you from a historian or a, a, a early church scholar apologist, Eusebius, which you should be familiar with him. We've brought him into this discussion. Well, he was from the 3rd and 4th century, and he had something to say about the Ebionites that um, peculiarly is, is very, very similar to what Theodoret said in the 5th century. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because what Theodoret said was just regurgitating what Eusebius already wrote. Okay, that was just, but so I want to take you to the earlier source to what Eusebius has to say and listen very carefully to how he lays this out. The Sabbath and the rest of the discipline of the Jews, they meaning Ebionites, observed just like them, meaning the Ebionites observed the Sabbath just like their Jewish brothers, all the Jewish brothers. But at the same time, like us, Eusebius, meaning the Christians, okay, the church, the Christian church, they celebrated the Lord's days as what? As a memorial of the resurrection of the Savior. So the Ebionites memorialized the day. This is, this is different. This is slightly different than observing the day as sacred with holy implications, with all the prohibitions and the distinctions that come along with Sabbath observance which ironically enough falls more into line with how traditional Christianity actually observes Sunday to this very day. Let me be clear on something. Gentile Christianity, just do your history, look at it, has never really observed Sunday as a holy Sabbath. You won't find them applying the same biblical principles and restrictions that are placed upon Shabbat. I mean, think about this. Things like working, melacha, 
Now, typically what you'll find is uh, traditional Christianity, these are people that they're typically try to avoid going to their place of employment. But they don't cease from melechah. They don't cease from work in general. See, Sunday is a wonderful day to go work in the garden. It's a wonderful day to work on the yard, to work in the garage, to work on the basement, to put up a fence, whatever. We could go through a zillion examples. This is a day that is commonly taken to do these things. You think about finding your own pleasure, another prohibition that is placed upon Shabbat. We're not to find our own pleasure today. This is not a day that we're to embrace entertainment in any way. And you think about how, like, I grew up in the church on Sunday, and it was very common for me, after Shabbat, or Shabbat, after Sunday, after service, we'd go out to eat. And how many Christians do this today? This is, and they'll tell you, well, this is the Lord's Day, and they go out to eat, and they do commerce. Commerce is prohibited on Shabbat. There's to be no buying or selling. Or maybe you take in a movie, or maybe you go out to the malls. All of these things are prohibited. And yet this is, this is normal. And whether you're looking at Catholicism or Protestantism, this is completely the norm. You look at the reality of, of Sunday by the church's own standards and how they treat it. They observe it more as a memorial than they do a holy day. And that in and of itself isn't a bad thing. I think that's fine. I think the way they observe Sunday is absolutely, totally fine so long as you do not abandon the commandment of God. I'm going to keep taking you back to what the Lord has proclaimed. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I'm going to, go, I'm going to take you back earlier in history, something we overcovered, the Council of Laodicea. Let me show you how they worded it. And I, I didn't point it out at the time because I knew I'd circle back. Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath, but must work on that day, rather honoring the Lord's day. Oh, and if they can... Resting then as Christians. It's not mandated. Oh, if, if it works out for you, if you can, then you should rest. Here's the thing. When I go to scripture and I can read every passage in regard to the Shabbat, in regard to how it's constructed and how the Lord wants us to observe it, I don't find anywhere where it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy if you can. You won't find any of that terminology anywhere. The guy picking up sticks, he didn't say, boy, if I can, if I could have just rested, he was stoned to death. The Lord says, and he makes it very clear in the Torah, whoever profanes the Sabbath shall be put to death. We think about this construct and the Lord is crying out, don't do it. Don't fall into this trap. But with Sunday and, and the construct of Sunday, it's completely different. And I'm talking in Christianity from their own perspective. Now, moving on, he goes on to say this. When Gentiles become Christians, they never begin, began to worship on the Saturday Sabbath of the Jews. They simply began to worship on Sunday, the day of Christ's resurrection and the day of Pentecost. Now, obviously, the day of Pentecost is always on the first day of the week. So he brings that into the mix. I'm not even going to get into a response I'm not going to respond uh, to this statement because we've already covered this issue. After looking at this, we've already covered this. This statement is completely, 100% biblically false. Isaiah 56 says the exact opposite. Acts confirms it. It is not true 
And so you can go back, and I don't want to spend any time on that, but it's just to know it's a blatantly false statement. In fact, when you look at uh, uh, Isaiah 56, it's very clear that the Gentiles are supposed to keep the Shabbat. And then he says this, Do not let the sons of the foreigners say that the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Don't say it. And yet we know what the heart of this argument and what we're going through here is exactly that. It's to rip apart Israel from the Gentiles, to rip apart the Jew from the Gentile, create two different paths of following the Lord. All right, so continuing on. Although many Jewish Christians naturally continue to observe the Saturday Sabbath in addition to their Sunday worship of communion with Gentile believers, listen to this, some Jews cease to worship in the synagogue on Saturday Sabbath. What he is alluding to here is the fact that based upon the influence that the Gentiles had on the faith and their observance of Sunday and their rejection of Saturday, he alludes to the fact that even some of the Jewish believers stopped keeping Shabbat for Sunday observance. Just think about the magnitude of that statement. It's frightening. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of a passage in Torah. You remember when the Gentiles came out with Israel, what is identified as the mixed multitude? They came out of Egypt with Israel. Do you know, remember what these Gentiles did to Israel? Let me remind you. In Numbers 11, 4, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. They were given into their flesh. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? So here you have Gentiles, okay? They were spared the wrath of God. They come out with Israel, but they start catering to their fleshly desires, to the dictates of their own hearts. And what did it do? It incited Israel to sin. They caused them to stumble through their own actions. So when I hear that Gentiles were so influential that it even came to the point where Jews stopped worshiping on the Shabbat, I don't see this as a good thing. I don't see this as evidence. This is not good evidence. This is a tragedy, is what it is. True believers in Yeshua who are not of the original vine, we are called to do the opposite. According to Paul in Romans, we're called to provoke the Jews to jealousy. What does that mean? To have that heart to yearn after the Messiah Yeshua and to keep his commandments, not abandon them. That's the truth. Now dropping down, he goes on. It is significant that God and the church never commanded Gentile Christians to worship on the Saturday Sabbath. Again, I just it's it's blatantly false. This is blatantly false. Isaiah 56 says the exact opposite than what he just said. Now, as we move on, he's going to offer some support, though, for this very bold and, and accurate statement. Since God never placed the Gentile Christians under the Sabbath day obligation of the Mosaic law, they naturally continued to worship Christ on Sunday as they had from the beginning. You want to know what happened to the church and why the church is the way it is today and why they don't keep Shabbat and why they separated from the Jewish people? This is the reason right there. They've abandoned the Mosaic law. It's at the core of it all. They'll have nothing to do with the Torah. 
Since the Sabbath, and think about this, they'll have nothing to do with the Sabbath because the Sabbath is, is within the Mosaic law. And this is where he's going with this. So when I talk about the fact that getting into this series and talking about the Shabbat, it's bigger than the Shabbat. We're just scratching the surface. This is exactly what I'm talking about. This subject is way bigger than the Shabbat. This is about truth as a whole. This is an attack on truth. Remove the validity of the Torah, and I promise you the rest will fall. The Sabbath, the festivals, the distinction between clean and unclean. Pretty soon everyone's eating swine. Your ability to identify sin, it all crumbles. The ironic thing of it is, when you actually read the New Testament, you won't find this rhetoric that we're seeing being displayed here. Actually, what you find is in the New Testament, it instructs believers, Jew and Gentile, to keep the law. Let me just give you a few examples. I could spend much longer on this. Not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And this is a passage specifically pointing to the Gentiles. The doers of Torah are going to be justified. This is just not rhetoric that is being heard today, typically. Moving on in the chapter, therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps, look at this, the righteous requirements of the Torah, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the Torah? This is what's required. As you come into faith with Yeshua, we're called to fulfill the Torah. Judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. And you, you go to Romans 7, 7, and Paul talks about, I would not have known sin unless the law had said. Pure and simple, thou shalt not covet. He wouldn't have known covetousness. It was the law who enlightened him. It was the law that gave him eyes to see. Romans 8, 6, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal minding, meaning the fleshly mind, is enmity, hatred against God. Why is it hatred against God? For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So when people run away from the law and they say, I'm not under, I don't have to keep the law. The law is a curse and stuff like that. It scares me because that's the words of flesh. Only the fleshly mind and the fleshly heart, no matter how deceived they are, will say no to the law. I will not hear the law, which interestingly enough, Go to the Torah, and the Torah is explicit. The Torah is the words of the living God. So do we, do we have ears to hear? Are we willing to hear his voice? People actually rejecting his voice. In Proverbs 28, it talks about he who rejects the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Those who refuse to hear from the Torah, even their prayer is an abomination. Now again, I say there is a difference here. Between being presented the information and rejecting it, and then just being solely ignorant on this. There are many good Christian brothers and sisters in every denomination. They simply don't know. We're not talking about these people. We're talking about the ones that have been brought the truth, they've been confronted with the truth, and they say, blah, 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 I don't want to hear it. I've had enough. I don't, that's not for me. I'm running the other way. That's where it gets scary. Second Timothy. Paul's letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 15. And that from childhood you have known, look at this, the holy scriptures, hiera grammata, 
The sacred writings. The only thing that he is referencing here is the Old Testament. The Torah, the Nevim, the Ketavim, Tanakh is what the Jews call it. And the scholars call the Hebrew Bible. And look at what he says in regard to the Old Testament. Which are able to make you wise for salvation. Wisdom. And that's exactly what the Torah says. About all the commandments of the Torah. This is your wisdom. This is your understanding. Deuteronomy 4. Able to make you wise for salvation through faith. Which is in Messiah Yeshua. It's not just simply. We keep the law to keep the law. And we're going to earn this on our own. No. We go there because of our faith in Christ. Our faith in Yeshua. We want to hear from him. We want to know him. And what is the Torah? It is the character and personality and nature of our king. It's his like and dislikes. That's what it is. All scripture. Again, he's explicitly talking about the Old Testament alone. The New Testament didn't exist. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And look at this. It is profitable for doctrine, theology. What should be shaping and formulating my theology is the Tanakh. Isn't that interesting? It's very different today. For reproof, alenkos in the Greek, it means conviction. Torah is established to convict me. And I'm telling you, I've read it. Oh, and it does it very well. Okay? It does an amazing job because it's a spiritual document. Read Romans 7. Paul says the law, the Torah, is spiritual. It is holy. And when you allow holiness to speak into your life, it will show you who you really are, a sinner. And it's interesting because then it makes you go back to Yeshua and beg for mercy. What a beautiful system. For correction. See, but today... Believers don't want to hear the Torah. I don't want to be corrected. For instruction in righteousness. I want to point something out. All these passages I just showed you, they're all from the New Testament. And they all confirm the validity of the old. So here's where I'm going with this. Why is Dr. Jeffrey, along with the majority of Christendom, telling us that the Mosaic Law isn't for us? And I'll tell you, I'll answer it. Because they're looking through the wrong lens. They're approaching scripture from a dual covenant perspective. So when they look at the very same landscape, they come away with something totally, completely different and foreign than what the first century believers did. There's a modern day term that defines this very thing, and it's known as a confirmation bias. And we're going to be looking at that in a much deeper sense next week. We're not going to get into it today, but this is a modern day term that, man, does it describe the situation brilliantly. And it's going to take you to a deeper level of understanding exactly what's going on. But for now, we're just going to continue on in the chapter. And he says this, The changing demographic balance between Jewish believers and Gentile believers within the church eventually resulted in a primarily Gentile Christian church that worships solely on Sunday. Again, that's true. You just look at history. This is the development of it. This is its progress. I don't know if I'd call that progress, but... The commandment for the observance of a Saturday Sabbath. Now pay attention. He's very crystal clear here. It was given to Israel. It was never given as a direct commandment to the Gentiles. Nor was it given to the church. Now obviously I have a significant problem with this statement. Uh, in one breath, he tells us the Sabbath is given to Israel. 
And he established that at the beginning of today when we looked at that. But in the very same breath, he tells us, but it's not for the church. How can this be? Because scripture doesn't present these terms, Israel and the church, as being mutually exclusive of one another. In fact, when you go to the New Testament, do you know who the first people were called the church? It was explicitly Jewish believers in Yeshua. Let me show you this. In Matthew 6, this is the first time we find the word church in the New Testament. And Yeshua is speaking to Peter and he says, I say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church, ecclesia, his ecclesia, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, this is the first time we see it. And here you have the king of the Jews speaking to one of the most prominent Jews that will ever live in the existence of the universe, Peter, and actually prophesying that he is going to build his church. And how did he do it? He did it through the Jewish apostles. They were the church. Make no mistake about it. They were the church. And actually what we read is Yeshua is the chief cornerstone and the apostles are the foundation. Fascinating. If you read Revelation 21, you will find that there are 12 layers to the foundation. And on each layer is a name of the apostles. So when you talk about building your church and you talk about the significance of what Yeshua is dealing with here, I mean, it's awesome. It's eternal. Let me give you another example. Going to Acts 2, which the Shavuot, Jews from all over the world coming in. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The only people were coming in at this time, it's not a debate, were Jews. They were the church. Acts 15, verse 4. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by, oh, this is Paul and Barnabas. There's a big debate, so they had to go up to Jerusalem. They were received by the church, meaning Jewish believers. And the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. The simple point I'm making here is that this term, ecclesia, or what we call church, this term was explicitly used to reference the congregation of Jewish believers, or we would say Israel. All right? And it's not until the gospel spreads out that we find this term being uh, used in the context of Gentile believers. So when we read what Dr. Jeffrey says here, let me put it back up here, that Saturday Sabbath was given to Israel, but it was never given to the church. That doesn't make any sense at all. Because it was given to Israel, which is primarily made up the church. The simple point I'm making here is if Shabbat was given to Israel... And Israel made up the church from the very beginning. And it only stands to reason that it was given to the church. <laughs> what were the Gentiles grafted into? They were grafted into the church. They were grafted into Israel. The very measuring rod of the faith. This is what fascinates me. The very measuring rod of the faith by which we measure our conduct. We measure right and wrong. Good and evil. Light and darkness. It's to come from the same source. It's to come from the Torah and the prophets. And every time we go to the New Testament, it is a commentary on the Tanakh. Every time you find an apostle or one of the writers in the New Testament seeking to legitimize a statement that they have made, they do so by quoting scripture. They do it over and over again. Yeshua fought Satan with the Torah, with the prophets. Again, I tell you... 
You understand why Satan would want to take this away from the church? Because he's seeking to kill them. That's why. Moving on in the chapter, Dr. Jeffrey, he gives his closing statement here. The attempt to observe Saturday Sabbath worship rather than the normal Sunday worship of all Christians for the last 2,000 years is spiritually misguided attempt to place believers under the impossible and failed law recorded in the Old Testament. Rather than relying for our salvation on Christ's offer of salvation through his death on the cross and entirely unmerited grace, the undeserved gift of God to his children. Now, let me just say this first and foremost. God's grace to the world, Yeshua, it is unmerited. There's no debate here. And seeking to bring this into the mix as justification for abandoning the law because we all failed to keep it, that is perverse. Because Yeshua did not come that we may walk in rebellion, that we may walk in disobedience. He came that we might turn and repent. What was the gospel message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It began with John the Baptist, Yeshua, the first words out of his mouth. Repent, for the kingdom of, hand, uh, kingdom of heaven is at hand. First words out of his mouth in his ministry. And his apostles went and did the same. And they were commanded to do that, to preach repentance and remission of sins. You take the law out, and everyone can define their own repentance. Take it out, and you'll be redefining what repentance really is. With that said, let me address this statement that I have highlighted. That he says it's a failed law, an impossible and failed law. I want to be very, very clear on something. The law never failed. The law is holy, the law is perfect, and actually, do you know that that, that is the problem? Because it demands perfection. Because it didn't fail, that's why Yeshua had to come. Because the problem is with us. What does Paul say in Romans 8.3? For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and I count of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the Torah might be fulfilled in us. But he doesn't stop there to those who walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. He adds that caveat, though. Yeshua came to die for those who are willing to walk in the spirit, the spirit of righteousness, the spirit of Torah. He did not come to die for those who are going to embrace the flesh. They're going to continue on in the flesh. But look at this statement. Look at what's highlighted. This is the very basis which the argument for abandoning the Sabbath is built upon. And again, I tell you, it has to be. You have to get rid of the Torah. You have to abandon the Torah to stand and say we can abandon the Shabbat. and We can create a completely new day out of thin air. The terminology here, again, under the impossible and fail law, insinuates what? Don't bother doing it. It can't be done. Let me show you a passage in Scripture, because this, this, this is where it gets scary. In Jeremiah 18, verse 11, Now therefore speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising plans against you. Return now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. It's a call to repentance. 
It's exactly what we see happening in the New Testament. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what does it go on to say? This is what it says. And they said, that is hopeless. Might as well said, that's impossible. They can't do it. So what do they determine? So we will walk according to our own plans, and we will, everyone, obey the dictates of his evil heart. Absolutely phenomenal insight into what has happened to the church right now. They're creating new commandments. That the Sunday is a Sabbath and they're abandoning the commandment of God. A direct commandment of God to do it. Yeshua addresses this very thing. Hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying these people draw near to me with their mouth. Meaning they're coming to him. They're coming to worship him. And they honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me. Why? In vain they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In vain they are coming to me. They refuse to listen to me. They refuse to listen to my commandments. And what do they do? They're they're heaping up new ones. This is how we're going to worship you. The law is impossible. That is hopeless. So we will walk everyone according to the dictates of their own heart. I will close with this. Look at what Yeshua says. Just a couple verses ahead. And he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. Think about what is happening in the church today. They have exalted their tradition, their memorial, at the expense of the commandment of God. God forbid this happens. Everyone stand. We are going to do our battle cry. Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid and do not tremble. Or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God, it is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And we all say, today we will go to war. We will not fear. We will not faint. We will not give in to the flesh. And we will not give in to our enemies. Today we will stand and we will fight. We will conquer through the might of our Lord Yeshua. And let us pray as we've been taught. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer. The music team can come up. Abba, Father, we give you praise and glory. We thank you for the prayer that we just, we just recited together. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. That is a, that is a battle cry, Lord. It is a battle cry to be asked to be saved. We need to be saved. We cannot do this on our own. We need you, Lord Yeshua. And we need you to send your good spirit to us. To teach us, to instruct us, to guide us, to equip us, to strengthen us, and to convict us. And we pray for revival, revival, revival in the hearts of the men and women in this community, Lord. To have the strength to turn away from sin. To have the strength to stand up in righteousness. To proclaim your name in front of people that despise you. 
Give us the ability to do this. Give us the ability to preach your love. The beautiful story of forgiveness. The beautiful stories we read about of you going out and showing compassion to everyone that came to you. You turned away no one. What an awesome Messiah you are. What an awesome Savior we have. And what hope and what truth we have in you, Lord Yeshua. We invite you in this place. We ask you to be with us, Lord. Do not turn us away. We know that those who came and begged you, you did not turn away. We beg you, gracious and holy one, that you inhabit the praises of your people. That you inhabit the confessions of sin. That you inhabit, Lord, the cries for help. We just pray, move, move in this place mightily, Lord. May we be soldiers of the living God. May the men in this community bend the knee with sword in hand and cry out, Lord, here I am, send me. Lord, we pray for healing, powerful healing, just not just in this place, Lord. The people that are at home suffering with whatever ailments, Lord, we confess you to be the true physician. You are the healer. And we call upon your name, Lord. Hear the people's cries and answer them. Let people receive a complete healing. You are the Messiah who can save. You are the one to whom all things... Hebrews says that you hold all things together by the word of your power. And you have said to us, Lord, through your teachings, out of your own mouth, with God, all things are possible. And we confess that. We confess you as Lord and Savior, Lord. And uh, Lord, let this light shine. Let the light in this community shine out to be an encouragement to those who are brokenhearted, to give hope to those in need. We just pray all these things in the mighty name of Yeshua. Amen.